Our second Bible reading is Psalm 66. So if you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 606. We'll read the whole chapter. Psalm 66, starting at the beginning. For the director of music, a song, a psalm. Shout with joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done. How awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, and you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my tongue. His praise was on my tongue. So I cried out to him with my mouth, his praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Good morning. I was just reflecting on how long it was since uh, I first came to this church and I think it's almost exactly 33 years ago, uh, almost to the Sunday that uh, our family arrived from Indonesia and attended uh, this church for the first time. So it's good to be back. Uh, I have been back a few more times since uh, that particular occasion. Uh, we are looking at the book of Psalms this morning and it will be from the 66th Psalm that was just read for us. And before we look at it, let me lead you in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, the pages of our Bibles are open. Uh, your word is before us. We pray that you will open by your Spirit our minds and hearts to understand its truths and then to help us embody those truths in the lives we live. So we pray that your Spirit might be our teacher this morning 
and lead us from the written word to the personal living word, even your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Psalms has been described as the medicine chest of the soul. The medicine chest of the soul. In other words, it uh, describes, it addresses, it ministers to all of the seasons, uh, all of the experiences, all of the sicknesses uh, of the soul. Whether that be pain or suffering, uh, or perhaps joy and delight, or perhaps frustration and lament, or whether you're going through this morning confusion and despondency, it's all here somewhere uh, in this book of the Scripture. And it's uh, a privilege to be invited uh, by John to share in this series uh, through the month of January on this book of Psalms. And so I've chosen uh, a psalm which is less well known, the 66th. It was a psalm that uh, became special for me about midway through last year. So what is this psalm about? Uh, what should we th be thinking about as we uh, look at this psalm? Well, I may be wrong, but I don't think you need a degree in theology uh, to recognize that this psalm is all about praise and worship. Uh, the first verse says, Praise be to, uh, sorry, shout for joy to God all the earth. And then the last verse, praise be to God. So you've got praise as the beginning and the end, the bookends of the psalm. Uh, but almost every other verse within the psalm, either directly or indirectly, refers to this topic of worship. So verse 2, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Verse 4, all the earth bows down to you, and so on. It's Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his magisterial commentary on the Psalms called the Treasury of David. Uh, of the 66th, he writes this, uh, Praise is the topic, and the subjects are the Lord's great works, his gracious benefits, his faithful deliverances, and all his dealings with his people. And you'll have noticed as the psalm was read that uh, the psalmist doesn't address any of the modern concerns that the church has with worship. So the psalmist is not concerned about making worship more relevant, more consumer friendly, uh, by adjusting the style of music, by shortening the length of the sermon, or changing the brand of coffee that you serve in the hall afterwards. Uh, worship is not a commodity to shop around for and then abandon when something more trendier, something more relevant comes along. Instead, the psalmist focuses upon uh, reverence for God uh, rather than relevance uh, of worship. And so he begins uh, in verses 1 to 4, uh, and the outline, I think, is in the uh, new sheet that you received as you came through the door. I'll be following that. Uh, the beginning of the psalm, the first section of the three sections, verses 1 to 4, uh, begins with uh, a universal invitation to worship God. Uh, every verb that uh, is used there uh, in those first four verses is in the imperative. It's an invitation. And that invitation to all the earth has a, 
uh, a distinctly evangelistic flavor to it. Uh, it's all the earth in verse 1 and again in verse 4, all the earth bows down to you. In other words, uh, I take it to mean that everyone, without exception, friend and foe alike, are being addressed by this invitation to worship. Verse 3 mentions God's enemies who cringe before you. These are uh, those who reject or ignore or, or who are indifferent uh, to his rule. Uh, the commentaries suggest that verse 4 is, uh, can be read as a future, therefore it's something like, all the earth will bow down to you. They will sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. In other words, there's a time coming uh, when uh, everyone, without exception, will bend the knee, both those who know him as their saviour and those who have rejected him. It's rather like that uh, reading we had from Philippians, the first of the readings this morning, uh, where the Apostle Paul writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And on that day, verse 3 says, uh, there will be those who cringe. In other words, there will be those who bow in submission, but that uh, bowing to God uh, is something that is uh, reluctant, it's grudging, and it's involuntary. Now, I've been using uh, the word uh, invitation, and on reflection, I think that word is probably, uh, it's too weak. Um, it's more than simply an invitation to worship a majestic God. It doesn't convey the compelling nature of that inv invitation. Uh, it ignores the exalted position and glorious character of the one who makes that invitation. When we think of God's character, his majestic deeds, his holy name, his power, if this God invites us to worship, it's something that you cannot ignore. So it's more than an invitation. Now sometimes during the day I get a phone call at home uh, from an anonymous caller from a distant land inviting me to submit my personal financial details <clears throat> uh, to the caller. Well, I could be forgiven for ignoring that invitation. On the other hand, if I get a letter from the Australian tax office uh, to the same effect, uh, it's something that I need to comply with. It's something I need to take seriously. And so what I'm suggesting is that what we've got here in this command to worship is just that. It is uh, something that comes with compulsion. Uh, perhaps some of you here will remember uh, the film called The Godfather. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you've seen it or not, uh, but there is a line from that film which is passed into uh, everyday speech. Uh, the Godfather was a gangland identity. He was a, a powerful mafia boss played by Marlon Brando uh, and his word, uh, whatever it was, <clears throat> was final. And at one point in the film the godfather's godson comes to him in tears. Uh, his godson wanted to be uh, an actor in a film but he's been turned down by a producer for this acting role and so he goes uh, to the godfather and begs him with tears for help to get this particular job. And that's when Marlo, Marlon Brando utters this classic line. He says, don't worry, he says, I'll make him an offer. 
he can't refuse. Now you and I know that uh, in everyday language, in everyday context, the word offer normally uh, carries with it the idea of uh, negotiation, uh, of barter, perhaps an exchange of gifts or services and so on. But of course in the context of the film, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, mafia godfathers uh, don't negotiate. If the godfather makes you an offer, you don't bargain, you don't ignore it. In reality, it's an ultimatum. Now, the parallels uh, in Psalm 66 are obviously uh, not exact. But that invitation to worship in verses 1 to 4 comes, you see, with all the weight of divine authority. It comes from the one who is the God and Father of us all. It comes from one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this invitation is to all the earth. It's an invitation to come over to his side gladly, willingly, freely, now rather than later bow the knee but in fear and cringing and in despair and realizing that you were on the wrong side of history. So this invitation has a distinctly evangelistic flavor to it. It really does matter, you see, who you worship and whose side you're on. Uh, a few years ago I was uh, on a trip uh, in Israel and I was walking up the deserted Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley today marks the boundary between uh, East and West Jerusalem. Of course in the Psalmist day there was no such thing as East Jerusalem. Uh, it was just the city of Jerusalem and on my left was the city of David. <clears throat> and I came uh, after walking up from the Pool of Siloam a, a, a few hundred meters I came to a spot on the ground where there was a brass plaque that had been screwed into the concrete. And according to the plaque, the inscription on the plaque, it said, This marks the spot where Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. It was the Gihon Spring. Uh, the Gihon, uh, you can't see today, but it still runs. It's, uh, it's underneath the ground. Uh, but it was very moving to be able to be standing on... Uh, the very spot uh, where one of the uh, great events of the Old Testament had taken place. Because here, uh, the accession of Solomon to the throne of Israel uh, was conducted. And it's all uh, recounted for us in 1 Kings chapter 1. And you remember that just before King David uh, died, uh, one of his sons, uh, a man by the name of Adonijah, uh, declared himself to be king. Uh, perhaps Adonijah thought after the death of his older brother Absalom that the kingship should be his and so he made a grab for kingship and thought it was fait accompli. And when that happened he invited a great number of his cronies and well-wishers uh, to celebrate the event. He held a, an extravagant uh, coronation party down at the spring called Enrogel which is just a few hundred meters uh, down the Kidron Valley. And everyone who attended that uh, uh, coronation party uh, congratulated Adonijah and applauded him. That was until Adonijah and his guests heard the noise of another party taking place further up the valley within earshot at the Gihon Spring. It was the anointing of Solomon. Solomon, you see, was Israel's rightful king. He was the son whom David had chosen uh, to be his heir. And it's almost comical, were it not so serious, that here you've now got two crowds 
uh, two coronation parties, two cheer squads, but only one true king. So who do you cheer for? Whose side are you on? To whom do you give your allegiance? Is it important? Uh, well, it is, because if you go on to read the subsequent chapters in 1 Kings, uh, you'll see the purges that Solomon undertook to establish his throne and his kingship. It really does matter whose side you're on. And Adonijah's guests quickly realized, because when the news came of this other coronation, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 49, it is written, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. So whose side are you on this morning? To whom do you give your allegiance? Which king do you bow down to? It's probably one of the most critical questions to ask in all of life. Uh, Psalm 2 verse 6, a prophecy of Jesus. Uh, the Lord says, I have installed my king in Zion upon my holy hill. Here is this world's true king. So who do we worship? Who sits on the throne of our lives? We need to get this right, and that's the challenge that we have uh, in these verses, this uh, universal command to worship this world's rightful king. And then in verses 5 to 12, <clears throat> in the body of the psalm, uh, the psalmist uh, helps us to worship God. He supplies reasons why we should worship, uh, incentives, if you like. Now, if we've been Christians for any length of time, uh, all of us would probably admit to seasons uh, when our worship has become dry, when our perception of God has become one-dimensional, uh, when we find it hard to get excited by the God before whom we present ourselves on a weekly or daily basis. And it's not that praise is something so remote from our experience that we find it hard to relate to. The whole world is full of praise. We all know or have met people who we uh, admire greatly. A few months ago, <clears throat> I watched a, a church filled with people who were gathered for the funeral service of the gospel singer Aretha Franklin. She was greatly admired for her music. And that church service uh, lasted six hours. People were still there at the end. Uh, try that in most churches and you might get a very different response. But that congregation was filled with uh, enthusiasm for her life and music and it just went on and on. And at about the same time, <clears throat> I also watched some TV clips of uh, the sprinter Usain Bolt playing his first game for the Central Coast Mariners Soccer Club. And in the press interviews uh, afterwards, <clears throat> there were spectators watching that match who were not even soccer fans. They had just come to watch a man about whom they were excited. And it wasn't so much that uh, Usain played with great skill. You know, his first touches on the ball were not exactly Ronaldo-like. And yet he was the fastest man on earth. He could outrun anyone on that pitch. Never mind that he didn't have the ball at the time, but he could outrun them. So how is it then that we 
find our worship becomes ordinary when we present ourselves before one who is incomparable in his glory, in his character, in his perfections, in all of his attributes. How is it that we can go for long periods when our worship of him is uninspiring? You know, if you buy a, a brand new car, uh, you feel so proud of it. Uh, there was a Toyota ad uh, recently, and the line uh, in it was, you're feeling it. You know, it showed somebody driving their new Toyota, and you're feeling it. You know, the spotless interior, the smell of rich Corinthian leather, the sparkling paintwork, and so on. And you want to tell all your friends about it. And weeks afterwards, you're still feeling it, as the follow-up ad uh, suggested. Well, I'm I can guarantee that after 12 months, uh, you will have lost that feeling. Uh, the paintwork will have lost its sparkle. Uh, flying creatures of the air will have left things upon it. Uh, the floor will be littered with rubbish. And the interior will smell of takeaway food droppings that have been left behind by the children. If you want to feel it again, you need to remember what it was like. You need to have it detailed. You need to give it a clean, a good polish and a wax. And it's the same with our worship. Uh, one way to recover our reverence for God and our sparkling worship is to remind ourselves afresh of the character and the awesome deeds of God. And that's what the psalmist is doing in verses 5 through to 12. He points us to the awesome deeds of God, both past and present. So in verse 6, he writes of the awesome deeds of God in the past. He says there, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Now I take that to be a shorthand way of referring his readers to the greatest redemptive event of the Old Testament, namely the Exodus. Remember at the beginning of the Exodus, there was this... Uh, demonstration of the awesome power of God in parting of the Sea of Reeds in order to escape Egypt and Pharaoh's pursuing army. And then in the second half of verse 6 it says they passed through the waters on foot. Uh, that word nahaf of waters, um, <clears throat> if you look it up it actually means a river. So I think it should read they passed through the river on foot. And I think this is an allusion to uh, the crossing of the Jordan River under Joshua. The, jo uh, the Jordan would have been swollen by snowmelt from uh, Mount Hermon. And this event, recorded in Joshua 3, signaled the end of the Exodus period, the wilderness period, and entry into the promised land of Canaan. Remember this, says the psalmist. Remember how God has redeemed you. And then in verses 8 to 12, the psalmist turns to his present experience. And if I could summarize verses 8 to 12, uh, <clears throat> I would say uh, what the psalmist is pointing us to are trials in which God has proved himself faithful. In poetic form, for example, he mentions uh, in verse, first part of verse 9, He has preserved our lives. 
Now, it doesn't go into detail what it was, but it may have been a danger or a threat from enemies, or perhaps his life was uh, uh, threatened by serious illness. And then in the second part of verse 9, he says, He kept our feet from slipping. In other words, a trial so grievous, uh, so lengthy, that faith itself was brought into scrutiny. Faith itself was wavering. And yet through it, he says in verse 10, You brought us, uh, you tested us, you refined us like silver. His faith was made stronger and made uh, more pure. And then in verse 11, uh, he writes, You brought us into prison. That word for prison is literally the word for a net that is used to, uh, to capture a wild animal. So perhaps here he's thinking of a stressful time in his life when there seemed to be no escape, when there was no way out, when every option was closed off, and he felt trapped with no prospect of relief. And then in verse 12 he says, You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. I think he's alluding perhaps to powers or secular powers that seem to have the upper hand over God's people and brought God's people into times of distress and even persecution. And yet through it all God was in control. Verse 12, You brought us to a place of abundance. Going through a dry patch in worship, well, the psalmist deliberately encourages you to recall God's love to you both past and present. And for the Christian, of course, the great redemptive event, the greatest redemptive event, is the cross. The Lord's Supper is instituted just for that purpose, to help us remember. I was looking at the table down here. Uh, Do this in remembrance of me, it says. But what about your present experience? Recall how God has been good to you uh, in his providence. Remember the hymn, Count Your Blessings? When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's a great way, isn't it, by deliberately recalling God's awesome deeds, past and present, to prime the pump of our worship, to regain that sparkle that we've lost. Richard Pratt, uh, in a book on prayer, recounts the story of a prayer group that had become dry and boring. So they decided to pray in detail through all of the events of the cross and resurrection. And the Gospels do go into great detail about this event. And they went through it all. And uh, Pratt writes that it transformed their prayer and worship. It stirred their hearts to a renewed appreciation for all that God had done. So verses 5 to 12 provide us with a pattern for reinvigorating uh, our worship. Remembering the awesome deeds of God, both redemptive and providential. And then finally, verses uh, 16 Uh, sorry, verses um, 13 uh, through to 20, we come to a personal appreciation. I've been watching the uh, tennis uh, recently and uh, there's this section called Compare the Pair. Well, I want you this morning to compare a pair of verses within this psalm. Compare verse 5 with verse 13. 
In verse 5 it says, come and see what God has done. But if you compare the pair in verse 13, it says, come and hear what God has done for me. So he begins on the topic of corporate worship and finishes uh, in terms of personal worship. It's important to cultivate a, a gratitude attitude. And <clears throat> here his reinvigorated worship uh, is seen in two respects. Uh, first of all in verses 13 and 15 it's seen in costly obedience. That's what characterizes his life now. In verses 13 and 15 he says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. So the believer is in the temple. Now this is an Old Testament believer and when we read the word temple it's code for God's presence because the temple was the place where God had promised to meet with his people. So the psalmist has come to meet with God and this renewed appreciation results now in uh, coming with, verse 13, literally the whole burnt offering, the olah. You see, in a normal uh, thanksgiving offering uh, in the temple, part of the offering was burnt on the altar and was consumed, but the other part of the sacrifice was eaten by the worshipper as a meal. So in a, in a sense, there is a certain amount of benefit that accrues to the worshipper. But not so with the olah, with the whole burnt offering. There's no benefit whatsoever to the worshipper. Everything is offered on the altar. Notice too in verse 15 the variety of sacrifices. He says, verse 15, I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. This coming to the temple to worship God with these particular sacrifice is a costly event for the psalmist. These sacrifices were not of sort of uh, defective lean animals fed on low quality feed. These were the best of breeds. These were the, the fat animals. These were the kind of Angus cattle of the day. The best of breeds. And it's not just the chuck beef that gets uh, to go on the altar and goes up in smoke. It's, no, it's everything. It's the eye fillet, it's the porterhouse, uh, it's the ribeye, the lot. He's speaking here about costly sacrifice, costly obedience. And I wonder, is my life or your life characterized by costly obedience? Sometimes it can be costly to say no to the good thing in order to say yes to the better. And opportunities uh, afford us every day to lay down our lives for others for Christ's sake. And the one element of costly obedience that he mentions here is in verses 13 and 14, it's the question of vows. He says, verse 13, and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. You know, our vows, uh, we still make them. Uh, vows can be either formal or informal. Uh, formal vows happen, for example, when parents bring uh, children for baptism. You know, they take certain vows upon them in the context of uh, a service before God. Or uh, in the context perhaps of a wedding, a church wedding, couples make vows before God. 
when they marry one another, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, I thereto pledge myself. Elders make vows when they become elders. Ministers make vows when they become ministers. We make vows when we join a church uh, in a formal way. So that's one set of uh, vows that we make in a, in a sacred context. But there are also informal vows as well. Voluntary ones. Ones that we're under no obligation to make, but we make them all the same. And this, I think, is what the psalmist is referring to in verse 14. He said, I'm going to fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that he vowed. Uh, but when he was in deep trouble, perhaps something uh, he's alluded to in verses 8 to 12, when his life was in danger or under threat or something, uh, at that particular point, he made a vow to God. Perhaps something along the lines, you know, uh, Lord, if you can get me out of this situation, I will do this, this, and this. And now he's come to the temple to discharge his vow. Vows are serious things. Now, there's a brilliant commentary on making uh, voluntary vows in Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, it reads like this. Uh, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? So when you make a vow, God listens. Best not to make them if you're not committed to fulfilling them. It's no good saying, well, you know, I was all stressed out at that particular time of my life. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't think you'd take it seriously. Uh, my mouth just uh, led me astray. No. God was listening when you made that vow. And there comes a time when you make good what you promised. Better to keep silent than to make a vow and then break it. So that's one way in which this reinvigorated worship manifests itself. It's costly obedience. Then the second way in which this reinvigorated worship looks like is that his prayer life has been renewed as well. The key word in verses 16 to 20 is the word listen, the word shema. So verse 16, come and literally, uh, come and listen. Verse 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But in verse 19, God has surely listened. He's now come with this personal testimony to a prayer answering God. Answer prayer. Come and listen to me, says the psalmist. I've got a testimony to tell you about how God answers my prayer. Now, just a brief aside about verse 18. Um, some read verse 18 to think, you know, if you're good enough, then God will answer your prayer. Verse 18 reads, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
But this is not Santa Claus theology. God doesn't have a, a, a nice list and a naughty list, you know, and if you're on the nice list, well, good things are coming your way this, this year. No, not at all. Uh, the most basic of all gospel lessons is that answers to prayer are not by what we do, but by God's grace. <clears throat> what he means in verse 18 is <clears throat> that he doesn't cherish sin in his heart. He doesn't cultivate it. He doesn't hold on to it. Uh, when sin manifests itself, he confesses it and turns from it. Come and listen to me, and I will tell you what God has done for me. Now, what a lovely and powerful thing it is to have a personal relationship with the living God through faith in Christ Jesus, to have that personal experience of daily walking with Christ, to have a, a personal testimony, to be able to say, yes, God hears and answers my prayer. Let me give you five reasons why a personal testimony uh, is important in closing. Number one, the Bible encourages us to have a personal testimony to the grace of God. So in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, Peter writes, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Two, when you read the Gospels, people who met Jesus went away and told people about it, told about Jesus. I think of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 14. Uh, this woman who'd lived a dissolute life. And when she goes back to her own people, to her own village, she says to them all with this testimony, a remarkable testimony in the circumstances, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Three, because a personal testimony will encourage your fellow believers. You know, some of the most helpful reading uh, I've done over the years has been in Christian biography and autobiography, reading about the experiences of others walking with Christ. Four, uh, you can have a hard time uh, debating with unbelievers on some philosophical matter of the faith, but they will have a hard time arguing against your experience of the grace of God. It tells them that the Christian faith is more than a series of doctrinal propositions. It is rather a vital, a living relationship with one who hears and answers prayer. Now, I'm not suggesting a personal testimony is sufficient. It doesn't replace the gospel message, but it does complement the gospel message. And then finally, having a testimony is a lovely thing because it glorifies God. We need to ensure our testimonies do exactly that. You know, you buy phones these days, the chief selling point of a new phone is its ability to take a selfie. Uh, we don't want any um, testimony selfies uh, here. We want to give the glory and honor to the one to whom it's due. So a testimony is more than just about a changed life. It's not about us, it's about the grace of God at work in us, changing us day by day to be more and more like him. I think of uh, John Newton, who was a slave trader and who became a gospel minister, and he wrote for us that hymn, Amazing Grace. He had a remarkable testimony of the transforming power of the grace of God. And towards the end of his life, he wrote this. He said, I am not what I want to be, I am not what I ought to be, 
I am not what one day I will be, but I am not what I was, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a powerful testimony. He's acknowledging the source of the change that transformed his life. We see here the confirming evidence of a life changed by the gospel. A testimony is the story about how Christ has interrupted our selfish rebellion and brought us to repentance and forgiveness and trust in him through the cross and has changed us forever. A lovely psalm. This invitation to uh, come and to worship him. Incentives then to worship. And what a life looks like. A life of costly obedience where worship has re been reinvigorated and this <clears throat> renewed and vital prayer relationship. I hope this will be a blessing uh, to each and every one of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for its transforming power. We pray that it might draw us more and more uh, nearer to you in lives that are transformed uh, into the image of your dear Son. And this we pray in his precious name. Amen.